Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Physical Therapy Soapbox. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Rothschild, physical therapist with the Virginia Center for Spine and Sports Therapy in Richmond, Virginia. In this podcast, I discuss current issues in physical therapy and healthcare, will hopefully dispel some myths, and on occasion may go off on a rant. From time to time, I'll be joined by some colleagues as we take a deeper dive into certain issues and even answer some listener questions. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. This is going to be the second in our series of uh, podcast episodes covering running and uh, all things running with Dr. Andrew Mann, physical therapist, my colleague here at the Virginia Center for Spine and Sports Therapy. And the topic of this episode is going to be about footwear. Uh, Footwear can be a fairly controversial topic when it comes to the world of running. A lot of people, when they have knee pain or foot pain, kind of think they need to run out right away and get a new pair of shoes or get shoes that are more supportive or more cushiony or whatever is being uh, touted as the latest and greatest um, in advertisements. And kind of similar to people with back and neck pain um, looking to blame the bed or the pillow as uh, the problem, I think what we'll find is that uh, the shoes may not be as important as people think. So I'm going to turn this over to uh, Andrew Mann here uh, and kind of get his take on on footwear and where his thought process has been and what the research has been showing uh, in this area. All right, Andrew, thanks for having me on again. Um, and And that's very true that you know, footwear is something we don't want to emphasize with our patients, but we know that including a lot of my runner friends and myself, it's something we get kind of obsessed with. Um, footwear is something that is flashy and hot and we want the latest, greatest technology. And it, it contributes very little in terms of the research in regards to running injury, but it does play a role. And so we wanted to cover kind of mistakes we've made in the past in terms of shoe prescription and what we want to focus on in the future um, from a patient's perspective when you're going out to get running shoes. And um, one thing to keep in mind when we're talking about all these running topics is to think about what's important to you as a runner as kind of like a food pyramid, right? If you look at the biggest block on the bottom of that food pyramid, that's going to be training load and your running schedule. That's most important, right? Uh, next up, as you're moving your way up that pyramid in terms of Things that are less important, um, recovery, stress management, and sleep, that'd probably be number two. And as you work your way up to the top, you're going to get to strength training right above that. We talked about gait analysis in the last episode of the podcast, and that's, that's probably number four. Your importance is getting even smaller still. And then the final uh, piece is going to be um, footwear, and that's kind of like where dessert would be, right? It's that, it's that kind of sugary, addictive snack Um, that thing that we always want to go out and buy more shoes and use that as a way to to deal with pain or issues when it comes to running. But it's really one of the least important things. It's still important, but there's other, a lot of other things we got to consider. So just to clarify the things on the bottom are the most important ones kind of working themselves up. So we think about the pyramid, like the top of the pyramid is not the most important part. That's the smallest part where you would put footwear and the bottom part was training load. That's correct. Uh, you know, you can think of your training load as the old food pyramid, even though the food pyramid wasn't quite correct, and it's not something we use anymore in terms of diet. You know, think of that carbohydrates, that 
thing that's going to make up most of your diet, what you're spending most of your time on, designing your, your weekly runs, thinking about your training load, what your daily schedule is, and then kind of the, the thing you should spend the least amount of time thinking about is footwear. Um, but it does play a role, and we do want to talk about um, some mistakes we've made in the past in terms of footwear and kind of where the research is pointing to now. And I think where you have to start off is kind of with the history of footwear. And it kind of, in the 1990s, a lot of shoes were designed to control pronation. And we've kind of debunked that. And then you kind of get into the 2000s and this minimalist barefoot movement caught fire. Uh, Born to Run is a book a lot of people are familiar with that came out in 2009. Um, They focused a lot on how getting back to the way a human naturally runs and putting less cushion between your foot and the ground. And then the latest trend is, you know, maximalist shoes. You see hokas and everything like that where you're running on this big um, marshmallow almost. And um, just thinking about the history of footwear and and the people who design shoes, you realize that it kind of swings from one end of the spectrum to the other, and there's not a lot of evidence behind it. It's kind of whatever's latest, greatest, and trendy. And I remember back um, a few years ago, there was a few movies that came out around the same time about Steve Prefontaine, the legendary runner um, uh, from University of Oregon, and his coach basically was one of the ones who really kind of started Nike. And the original shoes, like that, his model of shoe was really a very would be considered today a minimalist shoe. It was fabric on top of a rubber sole, and it was a minimalist shoe. Um, and Prefontaine was like, a, I guess he was more of like a middle distance kind of runner. Um, but still, it's you know that's what shoes were. And then it really wasn't like you said until really much later on. Then all of a sudden, we started to add technology to shoes and really almost over uh, manufacturing them. I'm trying to put all these bells and whistles on them, and it hasn't been shown to really significantly reduce the risk of any running-related injuries. The the, the injury rate with running is still extremely high, um, which makes sense with any activity that you do a lot of. Um, And so it wasn't that it made that much of a difference. And then we saw, like you said, with you know when Born to Run came out, all of a sudden there was a mass switch in a lot of people to minimalist shoes. And all of a sudden, they were getting different types of injuries because they weren't prepared for the different types of loads. They're used to uh, being a heel striker onto like a marshmallow. And all of a sudden, they're loading their midfoot and their forefoot, and they're developing things like stress fractures, which they had not experienced before. And there really has to be sort of a transition. And then also, it's there's not a one-size-fit-all component, right? It's going to be some people still might benefit from a heel strike and a cushioned shoe. A lot of people may not. They'll be more of a midfoot striker. But that's the thing is that you have to figure out what's really best for you, not trying to fit yourself into into a mold. Yeah, that's a great point. The unique uh, aspects of an individual's foot, um, their entire lower extremity structure, how they land, how they run, how they've learned to move growing up throughout life. It's just so unique. And so to make broad-based statements about shoe wear is very difficult. Um, we're going to try to find some conclusions based on the research here to give you some guidelines, but there's a lot of wiggle room within those guidelines because everyone is so unique. Um, and this, just to tie it back in with our previous episode on gait analysis, this is where the gait analysis part comes into handy because we you can assess someone's running in their shoes or even barefoot and kind of see, hey, how does, does, that, does that make symptoms feel better or worse? Does that change? How does that change your landing mechanics? How does it change your, your stride length? How does it change your pace? 
you know, just by taking the shoe away or by adding the shoe in, in some cases or by changing the shoe in some cases, which I think is different than going to be a different experience than just going to a shoe store, having a shoe salesman walk, watch you walk for a few minutes and then trying to put you in a pair of shoes without really getting you to go through the paces of actually testing how it's going to be uh, with your running. Yeah. And the, you know, the gait analysis just allows us to be a little bit more specific. Um, and if you're looking for details on that, you can go back to the previous episode and we go in depth on that, uh, the gait analysis and how we kind of combine shoe wear and running barefoot and how that gives us an idea of what kind of strategies you want to adopt to, um, hopefully run pain free. Um, I did want to just go over some of the previous ways we used to pre- prescribe shoes and, and, you know, some of the, the faults that lied in them, um, and some of the research on that. And, uh, number one thing I think we used to, to focus a lot on, and some people still do is focusing on arch height. And, you know, the research has found that looking at someone's footprint or their static arch height and standing, um, and then prescribing them a shoe based on that is not any more likely to prevent injury than just giving them a random shoe. So there's research done where they gave, you know, half the participants a random shoe to run in, and then they measured the other participants arch height and they said, Oh, you need more arch support. Oh, you have a flat foot. You don't. And they ran in the shoes and actually the people who were given random shoes actually had fewer injuries. Um, another one is we used to prescribe shoes based on pronation. And for our listeners who want clarity on the term pronation, um, it gets thrown around a lot and pronation is just simply how your foot and arch drop towards the ground to absorb forces when you land. Um, this is followed by supination, which is simply how your foot reforms that arch and becomes a rigid lever so that you can push off the ground to take your next step. And the problem with prescribing shoes based on pronation is that measuring over pronation is unreliable and it's difficult to do. It's such a dynamic process. And even if we could measure it, the research has shown that individuals put in motion control shoes still pronate inside the shoe. So we watch them run, look at the shoe after putting them in these motion control shoes and say, problem fixed. But when, if you really look inside the shoe, they're still pronating to the same degree. You just can't see it. And pronation is an essential part of running anyway. It's necessary because that's how you absorb force in your body. Your foot starts to accommodate to the ground and absorbs kinetic energy to then, you know, resupinate and push off. So taking away pronation in and of itself is not necessarily uh, a good thing. And, that, you know, I know there are cases when sometimes someone can have excessive pronation and you need to fill that space. And But those things happen much less frequently, I think, than those shoes are end up being prescribed for people. And I know there's also some research that shows that, you know, overpronation for a lot of people is not a necessary in and of itself, a risk factor for injury. So it's not always something that's a problem um, that needs to be taken away. Um, and something that you might be bringing up in the future here anyways, you know, the same thing with like a flat foot. People think, oh, I have flat feet. I need, I need these inserts or I need these art supports where again, they've had a flat foot their whole life. That's normal for them. It's not necessarily a problem. It's not, we don't need to pathologize something that is actually normal. Um, and this is something I tell patients too with, with talking about arch support is that think about when we, you drive by an arch bridge, is there anything under the arch? No, the arch is the support. 
you know, if, if there's a structural problem with the arch where you've had a actual collapsed arch because of a trauma or things like uh, being very overweight, or there's a condition called Chocomarie tooth, or things like uh, severe diabetes can lead to some of these structural collapses. That's a different story. But again, these things are far uh, less common than people think. And, you know, an arch support actually can be taking away um, an important uh, aspect of the foot from the proprioceptive standpoint. You have a lot of receptors in your feet to, to get uh, sense feedback from the ground and you kind of deaden the foot in that way and you're taking away its kind of natural movement. Yeah, the, the arch height point is a very good one um, because there's a lot of research on arch height and how that might contribute to running injury and whether we need to support it or not. And, you know, there's really good research out there that um, Jay DeSherry points to in his his book, Anatomy for Runners. It's a great book. Um, if you're looking into some information as a runner to check out, and it basically talks about how they measured people with flat feet versus very high arches in a static position. Then they had them run and they were able to measure their arch height dynamically. And there were very minuscule differences between the flat foot versus the high arch. When we start to move dynamically, it's about the muscle support system. Um, you know, it's important for you to develop the skill and strength and the control of these muscles in your foot. You know, it's more about control of pronation, not necessarily how much, you know, pronation is a good thing. It's really important because it, absorbs a lot of the force um, before it reaches your shin, your knee, and your hip. And people with flat feet actually have a really good force absorber for running long distance. Um, when you think about pronation, it's also extremely important because it allows us to get our big toe to the ground. And this big toe strength is key. It provides 80 to 85% of the support of your foot and arch when you land. So that, that big toe, um, another analogy that Jay has talked about in the past is you think about trying to hammer with just your four fingers and not using your thumb at all. It's kind of the same way with walking in your foot. That big toe is crucial to the stability of your foot. It kind of forms this tripod of balance. So it's like trying to hammer with just your four fingers and no thumb support. You're not going to be very stable, right? And it's the same thing with your running. So that pronation allows you to get that big toe to the ground and really use it to your advantage. And that brings up a good point, not not to go too far off topic, but I remember uh, probably in the mid, mid-90s, uh, turf toe seemed to be a, a fairly more common injury in football. I remember Deion Sanders, I think, had it at one time. And, you know, it's is one of those things common in, in football players that had to do with like a hyperextension injury of the, of the big toe, and they'd be out for like months. And it was like, that's oh, the big toe. How is it such a, you know, why is it, why are they uh, taking so long to, to get back on the field? And you'll realize because the big toe is so important from a stability and a propulsive uh, power mechanism and that, you know, without it, you really cannot function in a very dynamic or powerful way. So, um, and that's something that I've learned recently too, that you've kind of brought to my attention with, with the big toe and how important that is. Um, and we have, you, you have a, a nice device here in the clinic, uh, a little tool that you use to help with runners, um, you know, sort of really focus on that big toe probably more so than they have, uh, in the past. Yeah, I'm going to shout out Jay DeSherry again. Uh, he came up with this thing called the Mobo Board, and it's basically this rocker board that allows you to just purchase your big toe on it and take the other four toes away to prevent gripping so that you really focus on the muscles that are important to maintaining that arch height and controlling pronation and supination and just really building skill 
um, throughout the foot. And you can just really start to feel your foot burn um, when you spend some time on this thing. And it just really isolates things nicely for runners. Um, I guess the next thing to talk about would be kind of what, what, what are good practices to consider with shoe wear? So what are good practices to consider with shoe wear? (laughs) I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, you know, basically when you think about shoes, you, there's a few things we know from the research. There's been some research that's shown that varying it up between two different pair of shoes with running um, has shown to um, lead to decreased running injuries. Now, the theory behind that is that maybe you're varying up the forces. And since running is such a repetitive sport, by wearing two different types of shoes and alternating between those with your runs, um, you're going to have changes in the type of forces your, your muscles are experiencing. And so just to clarify, it means two totally different like shoe models, right? Not two different pairs of the same shoe. And I ask that because you know, runners are very particular about their shoes. And because models seem to change every couple of years when people get a pair of shoes they like, they'll grab like three or four pairs of them so they still have them. So you're saying different types because that is like exposing to different loads in a way. Exactly. Um, I know runners are really specific and they like to have the same shoe over and over again, but you actually want a shoe that feels different on your foot, maybe has different arch support, maybe it's more minimalist, maybe it's more cushioned, uh, maybe it has a different heel to toe drop. Um, you definitely want some different kind of specs and aspects to that shoe so that when you're alternating between the two, the forces on your joints and your tendons are different. Um, Another thing we know about shoes um, that's good to consider is that we know that a shoe should be worn about six months or 500 miles. We get that question a lot about how long should I have my shoes for? Um, And that just maintains the structural integrity of the shoe. Um, We also know that a shoe has a shelf life because the EVA foam um, that naturally hardens over time in your shoe, um, it kind of doesn't provide the same cushion or support after, you know, three to five years. So if you're going and buying one of those old models off the shelf or something that's on clearance, just be careful that you're not buying a really old shoe that's kind of just lost its, its cushion and its support over time. Um, I'd say the research is mixed on what type of shoe is best. And that's definitely an understatement. Um, everyone's running form and, and foot is unique, but, um, what we do know about, even novice runners is that they do well at self-selecting a shoe just on base based on what is comfortable. So when you go to the shoe store, don't be afraid to jump up and down, do a short jog and just choose what feels best on your foot. You know, unfortunately the shoe industry is focused really more on selling shoes than the health of someone's foot and, and running. So over time we've added cushion, we've squished the toes into this narrow toe box. Um, Jay likes to call it Chinese foot binding. Um, because people are just, you know, crushing their, their toes together. And really it's important to have those toes splay out and provide stability. So you want a wide toe box. Um, and we've also raised the heel of the shoe quite a bit over time. You know, Andrew talked about when shoes first started off in the nineties at Oregon with Nike, they were just flat on the ground. There was no heel rise, but now most shoes have around a 12 millimeter height difference between the heel and the front of the shoe. Um, so the general recommendations when you're going to, to pick a shoe um, is you want your foot to be close to the ground. 
um, and you want to be able to react to the surfaces. We talk about proprioception, your ability to sense the ground. If there's a lot of cushion between your foot and the ground, that's going to be harder to do. Um, you want to pick a shoe with a wider toe box so that your toes can spread out naturally and this have increased stability with, you know, kind of a wider base. And you want to pick a shoe that doesn't have a huge difference between the heel height and the toe height. And this is referred to as kind of drop or heel drop in the shoe. You know, your standard shoe is going to be a 12 millimeter drop. And uh, when you think about kind of easing into a, a lower drop shoe, you know, the general recommendation is to not drop by more than four millimeters at a time. So if you're used to running in a 12 millimeter shoe and you're trying to make that transition and it's, it's not necessarily going towards more of a barefoot minimalistic shoe, you're just going towards a shoe that keeps you flatter on the ground. You, you want to drop by no more than four millimeters at a time. So a 12 millimeter shoe would go to an eight millimeter shoe. And that was something I alluded to before with like, you know, people after the uh, Born to Run book came out, people all of a sudden kind of switched to a minimalist style of running and were developing stress fractures in the front of their foot. And the other thing I didn't mention, though, was also the Achilles injury issues, because all of a sudden people are going from an elevated heel, which puts your Achilles tendon on slack uh, to all of a sudden, you know, 12 millimeter changes a little bit over a centimeter. Uh, for those of you familiar with the metric system, um, and that, that can be a big change, especially for running when you're talking about, you know, a certain amount of uh, duration and time uh, that tissue net is now under load that has not really been prepared for. And that's someone you and I have, I think, both quoted in the past is uh, Tim Gabbett, who's a sports scientist out of Australia and has a, a phrase, is, it's, it's not the load that breaks it down, it's the load you're not prepared for. So you can't go from one extreme to another. You got to have those steps in between um, as you're transitioning. So any... Uh, there's a lot of great information. Any uh, sort of closing thoughts to our uh, three or four listeners? Um, I think I'd end just by saying, kind of to reiterate what you said, um, focus on the things that are important um, in terms of that food or that food pyramid for runners. Um, but the, we'll call it the foot pyramid. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to shoe wear, if you're considering changing or going towards a certain direction, you know, take your time transitioning. Don't do it all at once and do it in a smart way, right? Um, if you try to do it all at once, that's, you know, it's a sudden change in your training load, a sudden change in your sleeping pattern, your stress management. Those can lead to injury just like a sudden change in footwear. Um, so, and another thing just to throw in there is not everyone is going to be able to run in a barefoot minimalistic shoe. I mean, we've been squishing our toes our entire lives we're not walking around barefoot. Um, we're putting our shoes in our feet and shoes with tons of arch support and a, that large heel rise. So that's what your body's used to. That's what the range of motion and your ankle and how it moves. So when you start transitioning down or you try to get into a shoe with a little less support, that's a little bit thinner. You really need to take your time and not everyone's going to make it to that completely flat zero drop shoe. Um, I myself personally know that I'm most comfortable in a range of kind of four millimeter to eight millimeter drop. If I get any further down than that, um, I start to run in some ankle mobility issues and you start to get aberrant movement patterns that, you know, you don't necessarily want to encourage in your, in your gait style and in your running style. And that just reemphasizes the importance of when you're doing something like this to have a gait analysis or have someone look at the way you're running in different pairs of shoes or barefoot so that you can do it the smart way.
And for patients who have seen you in the clinic, they, they see that you wear a minimalist shoe when you're working in the clinic, but it's also different than what you're running in because it's, it's a very different sort of forces uh, when you're running and mechanics than you're running than just walking. Um, and that, you know, I just thought of something too, when you talked about cushion in terms of what we do on a regular basis in physical therapy is that when we make, try to make a balanced exercise harder for somebody, what do we do? We add cushion because it makes it harder because they cannot feel the ground as well. And it throws their body into a little bit, you know, it requires more stability out of their body. Um, so you could say an advantage of cushion, you know, cushion shoes is that, Hey, it's working on some other balance aspects into your hips and trunk, but it's not necessarily uh, great for the foot. It actually makes it more challenging because you're not getting that, that feel from the ground. Um, and then, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that, like you said, it's not everybody fits into the same box. Your goal should not be to get to a minimalist shoe. Your goal to, it should be to find a shoe that's comfortable and that enables you to do what you want to do, which in this case is running without having, having pain. And the last little piece is really cost. I mean, shoes can be expensive and you're just buying, how many pairs of shoes does the average runner have in their closet? They only wore a handful of times because it ended up not being the right shoe for them. It can be hundreds and hundreds of dollars, if not more. And so of, of looking at your foot pyramid, um, that's probably the most expensive part is the shoe. And so all these other pieces that you can address earlier are much easier to a certain degree, simple, but not, not necessarily easy, um, but also usually less expensive until you get to that point. And it's always something that you can do, but it doesn't have to be the first, I guess, the, the first option, which I think a lot of people have defaulted to. Excellent. So Andrew, where can people find you? Oh, yeah. I guess if people want to get in contact with me, um, I have an Instagram that you can message me on. It's uh, running man, DPT, uh, man is M-A-N-N. And uh, I just want to give credit to a few of the people I've learned a lot of running from. Um, it'd, be, it'd be wise if you're a runner to look into Chris Johnson. Um, he's got a blog and he's really puts out a lot of good content for runners. And then Jay Desherry as well. He's got a couple books. I mentioned one of them, Anatomy for Runners. He des he's designed the MOBO board to help work on foot strength and stability and stance. And so just looking into those two guys, I think would be really helpful for most runners out there. And I can link, we'll link to their, um, you know, their blogs and their social profiles, as well as yours in our, in the show notes on the, uh, on the podcast. And then we'll also post a picture when we post the, this episode of the, uh, the foot pyramid. All right. Thanks so much for listening and, uh, stay tuned for the next uh, we're coming up in another week or two, we'll have the third in our series on running. So stay tuned for that. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the physical therapy soapbox podcast. You can find us on anchor, iTunes, Spotify, Google play, and more. Please leave us a five-star review and even tell your friends, family, colleagues, neighbors, Anybody who you might think would benefit from this information about us. For more information on the Virginia Center for Spine and Sports Therapy, you can find us on the web at vcsst.com. And for any questions you'd like to have maybe answered on the podcast, you can email me at andrew at vcsst.com.